0: Welcome to Majority Minority, a podcast about the rising and evolving influence of people of color in Washington, D.C., and what it means for everyone else. I'm Franco Ordonez. I cover the White House for the 30 news outlets that together make up McClatchy.
1: And I'm Bill Douglas, and I cover Congress from McClatchy. We're calling this season one of the show, a casual conversation in six episodes featuring voices from Washington, D.C., from outside Washington, movers and shakers who impact today's politics.
0: Democrats, Republicans, consultants, activists. We're going to talk to people of all shapes and sizes and obviously colors.
1: But all of them share one thing in common. At one point, they were political outsiders, often ostracized, sometimes criticized, and made to feel like they didn't belong.
0: They've been the ones affecting the change and charting this country's future with priorities that reflect not only their family histories, but the changing face of the American electorate.
1: Today we have Armstrong Williams, who's a close confidant of Ben Carson, President Trump's housing secretary. Mr. Williams has been an advisor, a confidant, a friend to a whole host of Republicans from Strom Thurmond to Clarence Thomas, to the Reagan administration, to the Bush administration. And today he's one of the largest owners of TV stations in the nation.
0: What surprised me was uh, how open he was about his relationship with some extremely controversial people in his past and in the current Trump administration. I think the fascinating thing about him
1: is that he says he doesn't see race. He does not think in in racial terms. Yet he also talked about concern about the image uh, of the Trump administration
0: of of being hostile towards minorities. We asked him some difficult questions about what it means to be a black Republican. You asked him some really tough questions about what some African-Americans think of him. Where he has been and what he's doing is fascinating.
1: Let's get to it.
0: in North Carolina. She Brittany grew up in North Carolina. Oh, did. What yeah. part of North Carolina? Uh Raleigh,
1: Chapel Hill.
0: We America? actually got we got several North yeah. Carolina connections here. You're from
2: Marion? Marion, South okay. Carolina, yes. Family farm. We were swine, cattle, horses, small grain producers. Uh, my father purchased a farm in nineteen forty eight, two hundred and fifty acres that remain in the family for the most part of my life. I worked for my parents What work did you do for your parents? Well, you know, farming, particularly for my parents, is about order. Everything is about order. Everyone is up before 5 a.m. You eat breakfast at a certain time, you pray at a certain time. And I, I don't know if you know much about the tobacco crop. We had about 40 acres of tobacco, and the tobacco is normally dried out early in the morning. And we would get up like four or five in the morning and go into the barn where they had these t- tobacco and tobacco steaks. And we would unload the barn because the tobacco would not be brittle. Because of the coolness of the morning, it would make the tobacco soft and you would not lose a lot of the value. And by 8 o'clock, we would be in the fields either cropping tobacco, slaughtering hogs, tending to the cattle, taking care of the barley, the hay, and wheat. And so the only day that we had for my eight brothers and two sisters was suddenly the Sabbath had great meaning to us because it was truly a day of rest for us. So did you have other crop did they Yeah, did we had the corn, we had the cotton, and then my mother had a five acre vegetable garden and then had about two or three hundred head of chickens. But the greatest value we had on the farm were the cattle and the pigs because and a farming is like businesses. You know, my father always taught us growing up that if you want to be successful as an entrepreneur, you need five different businesses that are totally unrelated. And so my father had the swine, he had the cattle, he had the horses. He had the tobacco, and he had the chickens, because none of the crops and none of the livestock are all gonna do well at once. But my father had this concept that at least three would always thrive. And so three always thrive throughout the farm. And then we had these seasons of blessings where they all thrived at the same time.
0: How old do you think you were when you started to kind of pick up on that? Four years old. Four years old? Yes.
2: You had to buy
1: stuff for the farm, provisions to operate the farm. Where did your father buy this stuff? And did he have
2: any problems buying stuff? Well, just about everything for us was made on the farm from the butter to the ice cream to the steaks to the pork to the beef. We can make our own bread on the farm. It, it, I mean, we created our own incubator on that farm. So you were self sustaining. Yeah, and we need to get back to farms today because, you know, it teaches you discipline. It teaches you hard work. It teaches you why you have food on the table, clothing on your back. It teaches you respect for God because you're so close to nature. Yeah, farming life is the best life. So you're one of 10. What, where are you in the batting order of the 10? Well, my father, uh first wife died in childbirth. And from that union, there were four children. And immediately after his wife died on January 24th, 1957, He was in need of a wife, because he had these little kids that he needed to raise, and he had to give his attention to the farm. So he went to my grandfather, whose name I bear, Armstrong Howard. And my mother at the time was 32 years old, had never been married, never planned to get married. She was just gonna take care of father. And he went to my grandfather to ask for her hand in marriage. They were married two weeks later, so she inherited those four kids. And then she had eight of her own, two which were stillborn, and then six of us.
1: So what number were you? The middle. It, how's that being a middle child on a big farm?
2: When you work as hard as we worked on the farm, and there was expectations for us in terms of keeping our grades at a certain level. We had to read books every week. Uh, we had chores around the house. We had to learn certain lessons in the Bible to teach us how to be good and to teach us right from wrong and how to respect your parents and how to respect your neighbors and how to give back even from when you don't have much. There were so many things that occupied our time. We had very little time to get in trouble. I just knew that we wanted to honor and please our parents. Our joy was making them happy. And, and, you know, the experience has served me well later on in my life. It's the reason for my success.
1: You mentioned your father obtained the farm in the 50s. How did he obtain the farm?
2: Well, you know, during that period, someone who happens to be black could not purchase a farm. And the one thing that my father always wanted um, because his experience of growing up on sharecropper farm, they felt they were treated unfairly, they were cheated of their money, they were disrespected. And my father found it to be very humiliating the way they used to talk to his father and my mother found the same the way they talked to her father. And they did not want their children to grow up with that kind of experience of that humiliation, um, the lack of self-worth, and the lack of self-esteem and never have an opportunity to really complete high school because you're always being pulled out. to call what was sort of phrased working on the man's farm. And so my father knew this gentleman by the name of Mr. Guy Davis, and so they attended an auction in 1948, and Mr. Davis, who happened to be white, purchased the farm for $800, and he turned around at auction and sold it to my father for $800. And that's how my father were able to get the farm because he had somebody in front for him at the time.
0: Was your father a Republican also?
2: Yes and so were his parents.
0: Was that common in, in the region? where many of the African-American families in the community
2: Republican? And Well, it was most common until um, Barry Goldwater and... When he was running for president, it was clear in order to win the votes of the South, he said he would denounce and in no way would he support civil rights legislation, which many blacks found to be offensive and affront to their progress. And as a result of that, there was a mass exodus of blacks, not just in the South, but throughout the country from the Republican Party. But my parents remain. In fact, we're third generation Republicans. My father's father, his father's father, and the same on my mother's side, never left the Republican Party.
1: Well, how come they never left?
2: Well, my father, when he was able to obtain his land, he experienced a different kind of freedom. He was working for himself. And my father always said that when Republicans were in the White House, the farm always thrived. And so it was in his business interest to support whomever was running on the Republican ticket.
1: Was there time to talk politics? I mean, did you gravitate to the Republican Party? Just it's what the family did, or he
2: explained why? Well, if my parents are doing well, I'm doing well. So it's just common sense that I was going to support that. Well, listen, my parents were not only involved with the farm, my father and mother would host fundraisers on the farm for the likes of people like Senator Thurman, Republican Congressman, people running for governor. People like to talk about these rags to the riches stories. Certainly our story was not a rags to riches story because if any of us wanted to go to college, my parents were able to afford to pay all our tuition, whatever college we decided to choose. So when you grow up in an environment like that, it's very different when you 're not being humiliated or denied or rejected or ridiculed because of your race, we didn't have time to think about race and My only recollection of anything racial was um, in the early seventies. My parents raised these fine thoroughbred horses and built this incredible barn and housed them and We knew there was a lot of jealousy and envy as a result of that, and we were awakened one Sunday morning that the barns were on fire and The horses were burning like a crisp. You could smell the meat burning. And we saw these four elderly white gentlemen running away from the farm with gas canisters in their hands. And one of my brothers yelled out, there goes the white man again. He keeps his foot on our neck. You cannot progress. And my father said, no, those are not four white men. Those are four individuals filled with hatred, filled with bitterness. You don't judge people as groups. You judge them as individuals. So that was a lesson for us. How old were you now? Nine to ten
0: sounds like something that's had an effect on you.
2: In many ways because my father was not bitter and they found the men who they were and they were punished. And so I learned early on that you don't judge people as groups, people are individuals. They make their individual decisions. I imagine you know some
0: guys coming over and, and doing something so dramatic like that, I imagine there is kind
2: of emotional stages that you go through. Not with the kind of men that my father and his father were. Um, they had seen much worse. Sometimes when he sits around and taught his brothers and other relatives the story they were told were so abhorrent, it's so horrific that you, it's unimaginable. And even at the the barn Burn Now, people came to help us rebuild the barn, and. The farm thrived even more, and my father said it's because he's willing to forgive and that his blessings come from the Lord. I do think that sometimes people use religion as a crutch not to deal with the real issue and the pain. But for our family, it always seemed to work out even better. Uh, You went to South Carolina State. Why did you choose State? Well, I wanted to be close to my parents. I wanted to work on the farm. You know, at an early age, around 11 years old, uh, I was responsible for the taxes for the farm. By the time I was 13, I was paying all the bills, because we had about 20 or 30 people working for us, so I had to sign all the checks and keep all the accounts. At 13? Yeah, all the money organized for my parents, yes.
0: I can't do that now. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what would an adult say when they see a 13-year-old writing a
2: check and handing it to them? Well, I don't know if they would ever see it or not. It's something that just remain with the family business when we're sitting around the table, and the checks have to be written. My father said, well, don't forget about that boy. Write that check out, and this is just the family business.
1: Now, was your father able to go to school?
2: No. He had to drop out when he was in sixth grade. And my mother dropped out in the third grade. And they
1: made sure that their kids did not?
2: That was paramount. Oftentimes, when we would read, we would teach our parents. They wanted to learn words. They wanted to learn certain things. And so throughout education, they sort of completed some of the things they wanted for themselves.
1: If you bought a bad grade home, what happened?
2: My parents were very reasonable. They realized that... There's a lot of pressure with farm life. There's a lot of pressure with school. And you can bring a bad grade home, but at the end of the semester, if everything is good, then that bad grade is forgotten. My parents always reinforced us saying, Well, you know, you may have gotten to see here what's going on. Do we need somebody to help you out? My parents were always loving, they never made us feel bad. The biggest whipping you would get if you fought your brother, if you talked back to your mother, that's just a no no. Respect is everything. You know, in my entire life, I know this will shock you. Out of respect for my parents, I've never in my life used one word of profanity because it's poison and disrespect. I've never used one word. I never drink any kind of alcoholic beverage, beer, wine in my entire life. I've never tasted it. And I've never smoked any kind of cigarette. Only out of respect to the upbringing and the household that I came up in, to my parents. My love and respect for them.
1: Now, your mother recently passed away.
2: Yes, a few days ago.
1: Yeah, our, our condolences. She remained on the property, on the farm, correct? Yes. So the farm stays in the family. Do you go back there often to, to work it or? No. Well, let's talk a little bit about uh, you hooked up with Strom Thurmond. You got into Senator Thurmond's orbit. How did that happen?
2: We were farming at the time. I was 16 years old. And um, my father had heard that Senator Thurmond was speaking at the Drahtak Seafood Hut in Mullins, South Carolina and he felt that farming eventually would not make the kind of money and provide the kind of living that could sustain a family. Uh, I remember one day we were farming, it was all planned. My father said we were gonna leave the farm early and get dressed and go to this dry dock seafood hut because he wanted me to meet Strom Therma because he felt he could mentor me and do for him things that he never could do. I'd always heard that Senator Therma was a racist And so I remember when I met him, I asked him whether he was a racist, and I could tell my father was very upset at the time, but Senator Thurman said, you seem like a bright young man, just give me your card, and when you graduate from high school, why don't you come work and intern for me? So it was all set up by my father and the vision that he had. How did your father know, Strom Thurman? Uh, My father was a big contributor to the Republican Party of these candidates. How did he become such a big contributor? Because he knew money talked. He learned that early on. It's just the business. He realized that there were always issues with the farm, whether it had to do with insurance, something collapsing, something to do with the greater tobacco, something to do with legislation that would impact his business. And so he learned early on that you gotta be friendly with the politicians. So my father always found a way to either write them a check or either have them around to the dinner table for a good meal or just host a fundraiser for them on the farm. Mm-hmm. It was just business.
1: So when you asked Senator Thurman whether or not he was a racist, what was his answer?
2: He chuckled. He never answered me. He just gave me an opportunity to work for him.
1: Well, Frank, I I think the most fascinating thing about the Williams-Thurman relationship is here you have a young black man from Marion, South Carolina, working for a segregationist.
0: He made a name in many parts for, you know, his opposition to the Civil Rights Act. That's why he changed parties. Right. And the two of them bonded to the point that Thurman felt comfortable
1: in talking to Williams about a child he fathered uh, with a black woman who
0: he provided for, sent to college, sent money to. Yeah, I mean, Williams' candidness about that was so fascinating, how he just kind of kicked back and leaned back and said,
1: yeah, of course. It was pretty much an open secret, I think, in the black community in South Carolina. My mother was a student at Claflin and went to school with her. It was just fascinating when the story broke in the mainstream media, and I think a lot of black folk in South Carolina said, oh, yeah, (laughs) Yeah, I mean, he was
0: blunt in saying, look, I believe that people can change.
2: Senator Thurman told me all about his racist past and that it was true and why he was a racist. He said in his heart he always felt bad about the things he had to do because of politics. To the Negroes, as he called them at the time, he said, but we all can change. And he'd known my parents for a long time, and he wants to helped my father live that dream that he talked about for his boys, and so he mentored me. Do you feel like part of
0: that was to make him feel better for his past? I mean, it sounds like he felt bad. Well, he should have felt bad, but
2: um, I mean, come on. The greatest resource we all have is the human resource, no matter what your politics are, you know? I learned this from my parents. My father and parents treated everyone the same. No matter their race, their class, no matter what they had, my father always believed that you have to uplift humanity And it just bothered Senator Thurman that my dad was not bitter, did not hold him in judgment, and was willing to entrust his son to him. And he would tell Senator Thurman, well, Senator, I know in your heart you're a good man. You just can't treat black people the way they've been treated. Something's got to give, because this is not going to last.
1: Why do you think it bothered Senator Thurman?
2: He had a conscience.
1: Even with that, though, I mean, having a conscience is one thing, change is something else. And Senator Thurman's views changed over time, but the idea that he's upset that your father's not
2: upset? It's a spiritual thing. People of faith understands it. Sometimes life is like synchronicity. When the pupil is ready, the teacher appears. And at that moment, my father was a teacher and he was the pupil. What do you think you taught Strom Thurmond about race? Well, you know, the senator was just a really great guy. (laughs) I have to tell you, he would take me over to the White House and meet President Reagan. We'd have lunch. He would go to these receptions and there were these huge trays of food and he'd take these oysters and stuff them in his pocket and would be leaking through his pockets and everybody would be watching. I mean, I just I just found him to be an interesting guy. But more importantly than that, Senator Thurman taught me about power and how Washington works. And he said, you know, black people think you're a traitor, that. I don't take you serious because you're so young. He said, "But we're going to have to prove them differently. And so what happened was that the Martin Luther King holiday didn't have the funding and the resources. And Senator Thurmond was chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee at the time. And all the Republicans, I'll never forget Jesse Hamm, some of the Republicans did not want Senator Thurmond to fund it. And Senator Thurmond was sort of on the fence. And so I was over at the Washington Hilton when he did in front the event in the conservative room. And I met Mrs. King and she was introduced. She said, I hear you know, strong Thurmond. She says, son, don't let them humiliate and embarrass you. And But I had a lot of confidence. I said, no, nah, he's a good man, Mrs. King. I actually thought she thought I was a, it was a joke. And he said, she needs funding. He said, you bring her by my office. And when you bring her by my office, I'm going to show you how things work. And it took me three months to convince Mrs. King to go by his office because she just thought it was a joke. But eventually it went by. They met. And Senator Thurman not only restored the funding for the King holiday bill, he increased it. And I earned her respect. She just couldn't believe it. She said, you're a child. And ever since that, Senator Thurman would not allow anything, civil rights, come in his office unless I was there to get credit for it. Did he ever talk to you about SMA Washington? Yes, he told me about it early on. I knew about SMA before the world knew about SMA. He told me all the stories about he had a daughter that he was proud of. Yes, I knew all about SMA. And I knew SMA during our lifetime. Well, what did he tell you? It was his daughter, and he had to keep her hidden, but he didn't keep her hidden. He would go on the campus and give her money and take her out. And um, he's stayed in touch with his grandchildren, yes. Were you surprised by this? No, no, not at all. People change, man, especially when you're in the winter of your life. I met Senator Thurman when he was 72, and he died when he was 100. So remember, I was about 28 years. It sounds like you loved Senator Thurman. I love what he became. I loved to see that people can change and be better, that they can realize the errors and the foolishness of their ways. And so, yes, Senator Thurman has a past and he must be judged by that past, but you also must judge him by what he became and evolved to at the end of his life. All are equally important in really understanding what his true legacy was. So, yes, Senator Thurman was a good man. I'll tell anybody that.
1: There are African-Americans who view black Republicans, you know, for lack of better phraseology, as Uncle Toms or sellouts. Um, are those disturbing
2: labels? Listen, life is a laboratory. And so many conclusions that people come to are not based on anything they've read, they've studied. It's based on what they've heard. Because I found from doing serious radio every night Urban View, the more people get to know you, they hear your views, your values, and who and what you are, the more you find you have so much more in common. So I'm not going to be too harsh with people who use labels because I do believe people don't necessarily, you know, sometimes we say racism, we think we know everything about the topic, but if you go much deeper than just saying racism, there's so much more there that had to do with why that situation developed into what it was. And so what people have to do is learn, they have to educate themselves, and they gotta be willing to listen. And so, yes, but I think there'll be much less of that than it was in the past.
1: But do you think, given the political environment today, people seem to gravitate to what they want to hear as opposed to what they need to learn?
2: This is a cycle unlike any cycle we've ever seen before in the era of Trump, and it has less to do with him than people want to admit. Someone like a Trump has been rising for the last 10 years because the country has become so polarized, so distant, so divisive. People believe that government doesn't work for them anymore. People believe everyone benefits except them and that Why do you still have these pockets of poverty when they elect all these officials in the name of civil rights and progress, and yet their lives seemingly need to get worse? And so you're seeing things that you really have not seen before. That is troublesome for me. Why is that troublesome? Because truth matters. The character of the president matters. It's time for him to behave as if he's president of the United States. And you know, whatever's going on in this country, he has just as much to blame for it as anybody else. And listen, I I think the world, I'm Mr. Trump. I know him i uh, have a good relationship with him. And I tell him, you know, you just you just cannot be too petty. I mean, even the tweets and the media uh, is willing to forget about their journalistic integrity of fairness and honor because they feel they're the cop that say, I got you, whether it's Russia or whatever it is, it's their job to make people believe that this man has no credibility. Well, he was elected. People knew exactly what he was. Hopefully it will level off in some way and the media starts at least trying to be fair to this president and maybe this president will relax and get on to doing the business of the American people.
0: Can I ask you about what your siblings think of Donald Trump? Well, I think I'm the, um,
2: <laughs> well, uh, we're normally all on the same page, but they're a, they're a little different. Especially my sisters and the issue of women. You know, it's a big deal to them. And you know what? You know, my, and I respect that. Did
0: your sister ever try to convince you to change your oh, mind? No, or to? no,
2: absolutely not. Listen, that's crazy. Absolutely not. I'm a businessman. Yeah. I mean, anybody talking about Lawrence taxes, 35 to 50 percent, that gets my attention. We all have things that we have to struggle with and agonize over. I believe the Trump that I've gotten to know really loves this country. And he could do great things if he can just get out of his own way.
1: Well, how do you reconcile? I mean, he, he is attracted— elements of the alt-right, elements of neo-Nazism, anti-Semitism, some racists?
2: Well, the bottom line is that it's called free will. What people decide for themselves and what become is not an indictment of the president. I mean, you can go back to Jimmy Carter and Bill Clinton and even the Bushes attract that kind of element. You have no control over that. All you have to do is set an example of what our principles are and which he's doing that. We're not gonna tolerate anti-Semitism. There's no place for racism in, in America. There's no place for bigotry and that's the role he has to play, and he has to say it as often as he can. Has he done that enough? Yes, he has, but obviously to the media, he has not done it enough, but he does. Look, I don't think that Donald Trump is no racist, no anti-Semite. I think Donald Trump treats everybody the same.
0: What are your thoughts about the people that Trump has surrounded himself with?
2: Be more specific.
0: Steve Bannon, for example, is someone who's come up several times.
2: I've known Steve Bannon for ages. He's like a brother. I mean, we lived on the street from each other, and I could talk about Steve Bannon. You
0: know, Bill, what was fascinating, we've had several people on this show who have raised Stephen Bannon as an example of the tenor of the administration that they're afraid of, using terms like white supremacists. You're right, Franco, not the Stephen Bannon
1: he knows. The idea from the Bannon that we see or hear about in the media today versus the Bannon who Williams knows as a friend and a neighbor, it's just
0: polar opposites. He said emphatically that Stephen Bannon was a good person. He went out of his way to reach out to minority communities. When you pressed
1: him about the content in bright Part in terms of race or religion, and... There was
2: no inch that he was gonna give. I remember during the campaign, Steve Bannon was telling the candidate, whether you get the vote or not, you got to be the president of all Americans. And i never forget um, Bannon picking up the phone, calling me, saying, I just talked to the president. we got to get in these communities. Is there anything you can do to help us out? And I said, well, you know, I really care about this Flint water crisis. I'd love to take Mr. Trump there. And listen, this was on a Sunday. And sure enough, on Monday, the candidate said he was interested in going. There. And I said, but look, I'm controlling the schedule because this has to be right because it's my reputation and then they got back to me and said he wants to go and so we flew to Flint, Michigan, we did the water treatment center, we did the church, we did the communities, we gave out water and, and and it's because someone like Steve Bannon really cares and so I know he cares about the issues of race and that we're not divided. Why does Steve Bannon get such a bad rap then? Listen, it's, it's, it's uh, part and parcel of working for the president of the United States. Steve Bannon has been accused of no more, no less than what they've accused Mr. Trump of. But there is nothing that you can go to of substance. In fact, to point out that the president or Steve Bannon are any of these things. They're just bites And if you say it long enough and loud enough, people start beginning to believe that it's true. But there's nothing to prove, there's, no, there's nothing factual to show that Steve Bannon is a bigot. He may be way to the right, yes, But is he a racist, a bigot? No, he's not.
0: The example that's been given is that the views expressed in Breitbart News have been white supremacist views.
2: See, the problem with that argument is that there are white supremacists and bigots and neo-Nazis on the left, and they gravitate to places like CNN and MSNBC. You're going to have extremists on all sides. But what you have to do is always be an example of leadership, of integrity, of inclusiveness, And hopefully from that, people will realize it's not going to be tolerated here, so you need to go elsewhere. Is that one reason why it's important for more
0: people of different races and ethnicities to be in both parties? I mean, it seems like the Democratic Party is becoming more and more minorities. And in the Republican Party, there's concern that there's not enough diversity in there. If there was more diversity, would we have you know, more people kind of seeing things a little bit in a better way? I mean, is that
2: a you know, way forward? I don't think having people of different races has anything to do with diversity. I think diversity comes in thought, exposure, and experience how one lives, how one views their fellow man, whether you value someone else, or whether you devalue someone. Because you can have a thousand black people in this room right now and none of them have anything in common, depending on their backgrounds and saying why. What we have to do is celebrate diversity in terms of ideas, experience, demographics. I think race says the least about you. I can look at you, and it tells me nothing. The last thing I should do is look at you and make some kind of judgment. I gotta get to know you. And I think the problem is people are too afraid to get to know each other, and because they base something, because you may be Jewish or may be Lebanese or he may be black, they make this determination, they're gonna embrace you anymore because this is my brother, I can relate to him because he looks like me, and they look at you because you don't look like them and say, well, I'm gonna be cautious about what I'm gonna say. In their mind, they're already bigoted. It's bigoted. Yeah, but you, you work in politics.
0: I mean, when, when you're kind of lining up your who's gonna vote for who, you don't always have the time to get to know someone, so you're checking off boxes. You
2: should get, that's what's wrong with the media, sound bites, we got to get to know the issues. Do you want more black people in the
0: Republican party? Should more, I not think, just black people, but Latinos, other minorities? Listen, I
2: think the people that share the values, our direction and vision of the country should come to our party. I think you should find a home where your values are. How did you and Dr. Carson meet? Oh, listen, I've been knowing him for 25 years. We met during Justice Thomas's confirmation hearings. There was a huge curiosity. I mean, that was a big media event during the early 90s. And uh, many people reached out out of curiosity, just wanted to know more because it was gripping.
1: Obviously, Dr. Carson didn't win the election, but he's a member of the administration, housing secretary. You recently had one of the first interviews with him as secretary with you, you and Steve Harvey. How do you think he'll do as housing secretary? I don't know.
2: You know, it would be unfair for me to try to answer that. All I know is this. I don't think everything in life is about whether you have all the experience and this is how you spent your life because we've looked at politicians who've given nothing but their life experiences to these different agencies and people are still crying out for help. I do think the country needs something else. Dr. Carson wants to get things done. He's willing to reach across the aisles. And sometimes what you need is somebody who's just gonna inspire and bring people together, the people who have the know-how to do the work. And I think that's a catch trait that is very necessary in moving these agencies forward.
0: Is it nice to have uh, the ear of the, uh, a member of the cabinet? Well, listen,
2: I, you know, my preference would've been for him not to take a position why is that? Oh, please. No, I just I just look around you. But he it's something that he wanted to do. And, you know, the president is an, an amazing salesperson. What was the sales pitch? I need you, Ben.
1: That's it? <laughs>
2: that was it, too. I need you, Ben. I can believe it. Yes, that was the sales pitch. And Dr. Carson's happy. He's ecstatic being housing secretary. He really believes that he can make a difference in wherever he is going in life. He has made a difference. And Dr. Carson, he will be an out-of-the-box Secretary of HUD.
1: So, you know, Strom Thurmond, Clarence Thomas, Ronald Reagan, Donald
2: Trump, Ben Carson. Have you ever thought about running for office? Oh, no. was oh, the last thing I would do. I love the marketplace. I love the business. I love the freedom. You know, I wake up in the morning. I get to set my own schedule where you've been your own boss and you set your own agenda. I mean, I, I cannot give that up. To go, as much as I love this country, I can serve this country in other ways. And you're right. What, um, if, what, uh, if, what if Donald Trump came to you and said,
1: I need you, Ben. Trump,
2: <laughs> I need you. It wouldn't work with me. No, would not. Why not? I, you know what? I don't know if I could work for the president. Why not? I just, I just his personality. It's just probably not. And he knows it. If I'm running something, I cannot be micromanaged. I need to have the freedom I cannot walk on eggshells and be paranoid. You know, I work too hard and too long to be free and to be independent. I respect people and I would wanna do the will and the vision of the president, but I cannot be micromanaged. And I don't like chaos, you know, because where there's chaos, you're not gonna get the best results.
0: It certainly seems like Donald Trump likes
2: some chaos. I mean, he's evolving. I think at the end of the year, We're gonna finally get the president that we're looking for. I think this is gonna be a very humbling first year for him. I think he will learn and grow a lot. I think he's here for a reason. I think he will eventually do a good job for the country. But you know, there's a spiritual dynamic here also. You know, sometimes you just need humility. You need temperament.
0: Can I ask you what your parents would have thought of
2: Donald Trump? My dad would have liked him, yes. but my mother would like him. Why
0: would your dad like him?
2: him. He's a businessman, a little crazy, a man's man. Uh, there are some things that would be very attractive to my father about Mr. Trump.
0: Were you your, your mother's favorite? The reason I ask is you said your sister had kind of different views oh, no, as no, a little... It's nothing
2: to do with that. Um, moms have a different relationship with their sons than their daughters. They have a different kind of trust of their ideas and their decisions than they do for a daughter. I don't, I don't know what that is, but my mother would take more heed into my thoughts on Trump and the decisions I make than she would hurt daughters. It's a thing of the South. And I think he will rise out of the ashes of this phoenix to be a great leader. He can. He has the potential.
1: Franco, I didn't know where it would fit in the conversation, but I thought we had to bring up the 2015 mass shooting at the Emanuel African American Episcopal Church in Charleston. Those shootings were very personal for him. Clementa Pinckney, a minister of the church, was a cousin of Williams. So and I just wanted to get his thoughts about
0: the sentencing of Dylan Roof, the gunman who was charged. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't even want to try to put myself in those shoes of what that just, just seems so tough.
1: As striking as it was, also a very historic moment in race relations. But more fascinating, I mean, he's unforgiving even as members of the church and members of families of some of the victims forgave Roof. And he can't, he can't go there.
2: Uh, you know, forgiveness is so important and paramount in my family. But no. I just, he should be executed quickly. No, I haven't forgiven him at all. Have you talked to your siblings about that? Or they feel the same way. Oh, absolutely. I mean, members of that, of Emmanuel, they forgave Roof. And I respect that. That's not me, though. And if they forgive him, God bless them. That gives me something to strive for, but I'm definitely not there with him.
1: You don't even sound conflicted about that? No,
2: not at all. Very clear, I would pull the lever on the gas chamber for him. They put him to sleep, it would be that simple.
0: We have like a group of questions that we'd like to ask everybody. Very bluntly, you're a black man, Republican party, why does it matter?
2: It doesn't. I'm just a man, hard working, earning my way. I have never been a minority. It's unfair for me to speak from that perspective. I've always had to pay my way, write checks to politicians. I've never had to get a subsidy, a benefit, whether it's buying a TV station. So I don't know what that's like. I'm in the minority and the top 1% of the wealth class in America. I've not experienced racism in this country. It's not affected me.
1: What does success look like under Donald Trump?
2: Simple, actually. Two weeks without controversies, without tweets, without infighting, where you actually focus on the work, where people are criticizing you on the policies and not on the process. The bar for him, in terms of what success is, is so low. It's just amazing.
1: When did it matter being a member of that 1%? (laughs) about um, in making a decision that you've made this week? You know, I think
2: for me, besides my faith, the thing that gives me the best joy is that, you know, the farm did fail, as my father predicted. And the money did run out. And on my father's deathbed, my father said, boy, you gotta take care of your mother and get your brothers and sisters through college that are there now. And my father said, you're a businessman go find the marketplace. And I was able to do substantially well. And for me, since my father died when I was 24 years old, there's been nothing that my mother and my family have needed that I've not been able to provide. Because see, I see it like this. I, I, I see my footsteps as being blessed, and my mother tell me this often. And it's this thing they call the anointing. My parents have always felt that the anointing was on my life. And so a byproduct of that is when you create wealth, it's just an instrument to help people. It just gives me an opportunity to create better lives around me, to have been able to take care of my mother in every capacity. Was, I, I didn't enjoy nothing more than taking care of her because I knew my father would be smiling.
1: Thank you very much for coming and visiting with
2: us, and we hope you'll consider coming back. It's a long podcast. Thank you.
1: Franco, it's not unusual for African Americans in the South to be Republican. What I did find fascinating was how he described his Republicanism, again, in sort of a business framework. He's part of the 1%, so he sees green as opposed to black, white,
0: or red. I'm not so sure he doesn't see race. I understand what he means, that race isn't what drives him or what he bases decisions on. And I believe that. Right. and But he also spoke honestly about
1: why his family owned the farm. They did not want to feel lesser than. They wanted to stand up on their own. And it's also, I think, a staple of his life. And when he does that, that translates, I think, from race to business.
0: Thanks again to Armstrong Williams for being here.
1: Find more of Majority Minority on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and tune in for you
0: Amazon Alexa users. Thanks to producer Jordan Marie Smith and executive producer Davin Coburn. And you can read more about Armstrong Williams at McClatchyDC.com. And we'll be back soon with more Majority Minority.